Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Uh, As it is a Thursday, co-hosts, as usual, joining us. Ryan Goodman, also here in New York City. How are you doing, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. Ryan, of course, is with NYU Law School and co-editor of Just Security. And in Washington, D.C., Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, practicing physician, former member of the Obama White House team. How are you today, Kavita? Been a crazy week. Looking forward to talking about it. Yes, a lot of, lot of different things to talk about. And we're really lucky to have... Uh, with us again, Peter Strzok, who's the former FBI Deputy Assistant Director of Counterintelligence, 22-year veteran of the Bureau, uh, worked on many key cases in the counterintelligence area, also for um, uh, and with Robert Mueller. He's the author of the 2020 New York Times bestseller, Compromised Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. Hi, Pete. How are you? David, I'm good. It's good to be back. We thought it would be good to have you to join us because um, although it's sort of gotten swallowed up in all this other news that uh, Kavita was making reference to, uh, this week the uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence put out a report on foreign election interference uh, in the 2020 election. Um, And, you know, its main finding, and I sort of have the findings in front of me here as I'm doing it, uh, is one that's not on the page. The, the, the main finding is that everything the Trump administration told you about foreign interference was a lie. <laughs> um, you know, in other words, they said it was the Chinese, it was really the Russians. They said they were interfering in you know, making the election a fraud. That actually wasn't it. Uh, and of course, at the core of it was a finding um, that uh, the, the Russians um, and Russian intelligence were trying to once again undermine uh, the uh, campaign of the opponent to Donald Trump, in this case, Joe Biden, um, working with people close to Donald Trump and, uh, and to assist Trump himself. And so we thought we'd start there and then move on to some other things. Maybe I'll let Ryan ask you the first question. I guess before we focus in on the Russia dimensions of the intelligence assessment. Um, what you thought about the assessments on China, um, maybe Iran as well, because I thought that was very significant in a certain sense of how much, especially the section on China differed from what um, senior Trump administration officials had told the public in 2020. Yeah, there was a lot that was interesting to me in the report. And, I, you know, it's it's fantastic. Like, you know, everything it seems in the administration, we're constantly daily being presented by this 
juxtaposition of competence as opposed to the, you know, just neglect and, and incompetence that we faced for so long in the past administration. So it's nice to see a very professionally done, objective, pretty transparent in terms of being open with classified and, and confidential information that they released. Talking about all the actors that were involved in the 2020 election, China and China and Iran don't surprise me. I mean, that is consistent with kind of the, you know, every country's intelligence service and their intelligence activities, whether in humans or on the cyber front or fashioned and served their government. So when you, I see in that report what I would have expected to see, that Iran has a certainly strong antagonism towards Trump, you know, a lot of that going to withdrawal from JCPOA and, and the kind of bellicose sort of stand they took about uh, regional affairs against Iran. And so it doesn't surprise me that they would be targeting Trump and trying to do things in that environment and that they're really not in terms of the scope of their capabilities, not nearly on par with China or Russia. It's not to say they're not competent, they are, but it's simply that they don't wield the same level of resources and broad expertise that Russia and China can bring to bear on the cyber front. As far as China, it, it's not surprising. I, you know, they are very, um, their nation, their intelligence services take a much longer view of uh, what their role strategically is on the globe. They're not looking, I don't think they see uh, themselves engaged necessarily as a zero-sum ideological game with the United States, you know, fighting for a balance of power. They are in an economic sense, but not necessarily in the ideological sense in the way that Russia is. And what's interesting from the standpoint about China that most sleeps out at me is the fact that they considered but didn't do um, any sort of interference activity because they judged that the cost might be too high. And it's really interesting from a policy perspective because the question is, you know, as we go forward, you know, we're trying across the board uh, to sort of establish what normative expectations are in the cyber realm, whether that's interference, whether that's hacking, you know, we hack, we, we break into computer systems, we try and steal email, we do any number of things. It's uh, when we look at the solar winds hack, you know, if you're not changing data, if you're not erasing data, if you're just grabbing it, every single nation in the, on the world does that. And so if we're going to go about trying to sanction that too much, we're really going to find ourselves in a tricky spot of limiting the things that we as a nation would want to do. So the point to all that is when you look at China's decision not to do something, the question then becomes, okay, so is this, is the noise, are the statements that the U.S. made on a policy front, did they serve as effective deterrence to behavior? Because that's what the Biden administration is facing now. I mean, the, the Trump administration punted at a national level, the National Security Council. You know, Kirsten Nielsen got shot down when she tried to bring up the idea of a unified government response to Russia. So I think what you saw is a whole government approach out of the last administration didn't exist. Uh, it certainly exists now. And, you know, uh, um, Director of Central Intelligence was finally confirmed today. I think a, a great choice, but what you see is a confirmed in place national security team in the Biden administration that is going to have to take on these pretty complex issues. And so the report lays a sort of groundwork for the terrain on which we find ourselves operating. So again, not a lot of surprises in any of that, but certainly very good, I think, for the American public to have an unclassified document that's authoritative, that is agreed upon by the entire U.S. intelligence community and is a degree, agreed upon with a high degree of confidence. So this is not, there isn't a lot of wiggle in there. This is the, you know, the CIA and the FBI and NSA and every other member of the intelligence community saying, look, we, we all agree pretty strongly and with a lot of certainty that this is what occurred. Yeah, it was, by the way, I thought it was kind of a interesting, uh, you know, message to the Chinese uh, in saying, 
you know, the, 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 the official language in their fourth judgment was we assess that China did not deploy interference efforts and considered but not deploy um, influence efforts intended to change the outcome. Um, but of course, one of the things we're saying is we know you considered it, but you didn't do it. You know, in other words, you know, where, where, where we're listing in and, and where we have insight into what they're doing is, is way up the food chain there. Kavita, do you have a question? So I read kind of parts of the report and what leaped out to me, which I think is pretty popular, is just to me, it, it, the anticipation of this kind of domestic terrorism, which we still from, and I'm gonna ask you to teach us because that poses a number of issues that are very obvious to me, including kind of the consequences around 1-6 this past week, future acts that might happen. And so putting on your former kind of FBI hat, how would you then take what seems highly probable, domestic acts of terrorism, this kind of, uh, to me, non-revelation that that's going to be on the rise? And, and what we keep coming back to kind of what can the Biden administration do? And, and what more besides talking about accountability for one six can we um, implement either at the local or kind of through kind of through the bureau? And I and I, I'm just curious if that's it's been weighing on me heavily, especially with this past month. But this report just solidified what I felt like was going to be a highly probable occurrences in our near future, potentially even for the duration until, you know, Meghan Markle and Donald Trump have their face off in 2020, whatever, whatever, whenever, whenever she decides to run for president, according to, to Donald Trump. That's a great question. It's really, and it's a hard question because I think you see the confluence of a lot of different entities and motivations that she spoke to. Uh, you know, when I look, I, I almost, as I'm thinking about this, I almost take out what Russia and China are doing. I mean, they are doing intelligence activity, the sort of thing that they've done for decades that everybody in the intelligence community expects them to have done and expects them to continue to do. And not just them. I mean, every every nation with a, with a functioning intelligence service is going to do things like that. Two things that stand out to me, and they're related. The first is this kind of shameful willingness on the part of some partisans, particularly on the, you know, on the right. And we can go through the logical suspects of, you know, the Ron Johnsons and the Chuck Grassleys and the Devin Nunez's and, and, and certainly Rudy Giuliani, the, the, the willingness of people to not only take bogus information, but bogus information that they had been warned about that was coming from a hostile foreign nation. And essentially we're being told or certainly had very good reason to believe that this was disinformation mm -hmm. and nonetheless took it anyway because it suited a partisan agenda to attack Biden or his son in this case or whatever the particular story was. So I don't know how we get to the point. That's not so much, I mean, it, it's, I don't know where you get to the point where an almost members of an entire party seem to feel that it's okay to take false information that's being ginned up by a hostile foreign nation and deliberately insert it into our political process and say, that's fine. I don't really care if it advances my partisan narrative, I'm going to use it. And I'm going to place my party, in fact, above my country. I am going to, you know, I was thinking, talking about, a, you know, an abdication of patriotism where it ever became okay. I mean, it's one thing if, you know, if the U.S. has always had dirty politics, you know, we, we elements swift boat to John Kerry. There's a rich history in American political discourse of kind of dirty things. But what I haven't seen before is kind of the active embrace of a foreign entity, a foreign government entity whose material that is being produced is being seized upon to use in this. And I, I, I don't know how to undo it. I don't know. There doesn't seem to be much of a 
political cost that's been paid by those folks. And I just worry that increasingly that part of that comes along with a mistrust of the U.S. intelligence community in general, that there's this sort of institutionalization of Trump's idea of the deep state, that nobody in the CIA or FBI or NSA or anywhere else can actually be working for America. They must be working for the other side. And these kind of reinforce each other in a way that is is really problematic. And I think also then leads into your your, your kind of corollary or, or other question about the events of 1-6. And what do we do there? Because you know, every single thing that we have seen, if we look on the international terrorism front, and let's call, you know, 1-6 was an act of domestic terrorism. These were people who were radicalized. These were people who were incited. These were people in some groups who we see they're being charged in conspiracies that they're planning ahead of time to do these things with a very set political agenda. And that was overturning the vote, which many of them didn't believe was valid, in large part was, were being given moral authority and encouragement by the president of the United States. So when you sit there and you say, okay, well, how do we roll that back? You know, one of the primary things we've done in the international terrorism arena is when you talk about de-radicalization, you're reaching out to faith leaders, community leaders. And, uh, you know, I remember going out and talking to, you know, prominent members, sorry, my earbuds falling out, prominent members of the community saying you know, part of it was, please let us know if you see somebody that's going down a path towards radicalization, encourage your neighbors to do the same. But also, by the way, put out the message that, you know, Islam is not what these radicalizers are promoting or saying it is in fact a peaceful religion, you know, using that moral authority. And so how domestically we engage in that same sort of breaking down this imprimatur of righteousness that Trump gave to these groups to have people standing up across the board and saying, no, this isn't okay. This is not what America stands for. Well, that takes what, you know, it, it breaks down their authority. It harms or, or, or impedes their ability to recruit and you know, all these things are swimming around in the same environment because you know, Russia sees that. And so if they have, you know, a uh, hundred gallons of gas to spend on kind of igniting or, or most, you know, causing trouble in the United States, they're going to find those particular flashpoints and put that, put their effort there. So it all, it all comes together and um, it's, it's a really tough issue. Peter, can I, I'm sorry, Dick, can I just follow up though? Because if any of these people won six, actually be even before one six charlottesville if these were brown people pick any brown islam brown you know hispanic brown this doesn't feel like it would have gotten to this point is that um unfair because you you were part no. of this like you have been sitting there when they were trying to deal with both islamophobia and then to your point kind of this american like democracy and i just feel I just feel more and more certain that we have narratives that are appropriate for white people and we have narratives for everyone else. I think that's a perfectly valid question to ask. And I think certainly, you know, I personally believe that there's absolutely some level of implicit bias or overt bias that in some cases is going on in the way that we're approaching these problems. I think there is, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what was it, you know, one six should have been foreseen more than it was by the government and protected mm -hmm. better than it was. And the questions of why that occurred are complex. And certainly, I think to your point, absolutely, were there any sort of chatter of the nature that we saw in the open amongst the three percenters of the Proud Boys or, you know, any number of groups are descending on the Capitol, mm -hmm. if they were coming out of, like you said, people not only not, not associated with a foreign terrorist organization, but of foreign descent, certainly Islamic faith, there would have been a radically different level of attention that was paid to it. And so the question is, why that occurred and, and what the, are they, is that a, simply a function of 
the limitations of the law and that the FBI and others are bumping into First Amendment protected activities? Or is there more? Was there a focus by the prior administration, the attorney general, and certainly the White House on Antifa and Black Lives Matter and folks on the left end of the spectrum at the expense, because these are resource limited organizations. If you're going to look at one thing, you have to take resources to something else. Were those taken off these right-wing supremacists, in many cases, white supremacists, but largely whites? And what was the rationale behind that? And then certainly also, I believe to your question that there is some level of an implicit bias. It is a very reasonable question to ask you know, is an organization that is still, you know, in the case of the FBI, but a lot of the government yeah. disproportionately made up of white males, consciously or subconsciously, are they taking it easier on those white males that may be subjects of investigation simply because they look the same, think the same, have the same general political leanings? And that's a, that's an excellent question and important to ask. And, and I it must, needs to be asked. And I don't know, I didn't hear it asked of Director Ray. I didn't hear it asked right. of subordinates um, during recent testimony on the Hill. And I'm not quite sure why, uh, because I do think it's a it's an important issue that needs to be looked at. Hopefully it is going on uh, across the government, but it's it, it, it should, I think, leap out at everyone, the disparity in treatment when you look at the way the last administration responded to the summer protests, you know, just the, 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 the pepper spraying and, and clearing of protesters at Lafayette Square, peaceful protesters. So Trump could march across with Bill Barr and, you know, General Milley with his, you know, just unwrapped cellophane Bible to hold in front of a church mm -hmm. for a photo op, that these were very different responses to very, to groups of people whose primary distinguishing characteristics were one, were largely white conservative males, and the other were a far more diverse left in the political spectrum group of folks. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a very important question to ask let me, and let talk me about. A, a, a approach this from a slightly different perspective. And um, uh, I hope it doesn't sound aggressive, I, but, but, but mm -hmm. because I have enormous respect for the FBI and the intelligence services, the Department of Justice. Um, you know, we named ourselves Deep State Radio four years ago uh, to sort of take take the piss out of the out of the out of the the term, um, but uh, the the idea of the deep state um, sometimes feels to me like it's it's got it exactly backwards um, because the this ODNI report suggests that. This it oh, doesn't suggest. It makes it clear this the last administration lied about these issues, lied in a way that benefited Russia, lied in a way that distracted attention deliberately to others other than the Russians, um, lied about the Ukraine, lied about the involvement of some people within their administration about it. Um, and we know now that Rudy Giuliani or Ron Johnson or Chuck Grassley or Devin Nunez were actively supporting a Russian intelligence plot, uh, much as, as we knew some things during 2016. And there have been no consequences. The Justice Department has not acted. Thus far, 
the you know i mean this administration has 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 opened up some files but at what point do, do you know does the fbi and the department of justice lose credibility if people can do this with impunity simply to serve their political bosses mm-hmm. I, I mean i think you have to look to the question you know what what what's the crime it's not a crime to lie to the American people. It's horrible. It's unacceptable. I think the, the answer is the remedy is at the ballot box. And, you know, you went in with Trump came into power as a Republican president with a Republican House and a Republic, Republican Senate, and he left with none of those. So there was a response to that behavior. But to, I don't, when, you know, Bill Barr gets in, I forget who he's interviewing with and says, you know, he was asked, I think Wolf Blitzer asked him, he's like, well, you know, what's the biggest threat to the election? Is it Russia, China? He's like, oh, it's China. And Blitzer pushed him on it, and, and he said, well, why, why do you, China, China, why do you say that? Well, I've seen the intelligence. Well, you're full of crap. <laughs> it's not. And, you know, if you look at the, I went back and read the actual transcript yesterday, yeah. and if you look at it, you can kind of parse it, that it's not exactly worded. Blitzer starts out by asking a threat to the, to the election, and then Barr answers in a way that kind of makes it into a slightly broader sort of, ambiguous question about the broad counterintelligence threat or certainly something where, you know, Barr can point to. I mean, it's unless you are an extraordinarily clever, devious, <laughs> malicious, <laughs> mendacious man like Bill Barr, you're not going to see that difference of how he left himself a little wiggle in there. But simply saying that, that's not, he's, he's not, Wolf Blitzer's not a federal investigator. He's not a grand jury. He's not under oath. So, I mean, in terms of how do you punish this, a lot of this is, horrible, unacceptable behavior, but it's not necessarily illegal behavior. You know, there are folks like, I, you know, I, I don't want to, there's been a lot written about Rudy Giuliani, a lot written in the context of all the Ukrainian stuff with, you know, Lev Parnas and Eva Fruman and, and I, and in what may or may not be going on in SDNY or elsewhere. And I'm very interested in following that story for the next six to 12 months, because I think, you know, a lot of kind of senior leadership needs to settle in positions. And I think you'll start seeing very difficult decisions being made, which will lead to either action or, or not, but things will get precipitatively resolved. When you come to Congress, that's a really tough environment because the DOJ going well pad before the, the Trump administration has interpreted the free speech and debate clause very, very broadly. And so the context of charging any uh, elected official, a congressman for illegal behavior is really tough. And, you, you know, the Jefferson prosecution, which was not a foreign influence type thing, but to charge or even investigate members of Congress is a very tall order and very difficult. So, you know, even when I look at the most egregious of behavior, which in my mind, probably, well, I don't want to name names, but there are some that you've mentioned and others that strike me as, you know, kind of the, the most heinous of behavior, but even showing willful illegal activity that could be proven is, is tough. So I think it's disappointing to say satisfaction is going to have to come at the ballot box. It's a little bit reassuring if you look at that saying, well, you know, the Senate was flipped and the presidency was flipped and that represents a, a, an outcome of that. Maybe that makes it, you know, feel a little less uh, outrageous. They, no, Ryan, I, I just want to interject there. It is impossible for me to imagine, given the intelligence that's included in this, that Donald Trump was not given a red flag at some point along the way, saying what you're being fed is coming from Russian intelligence, and that he willfully, nonetheless, 
continued to do that. And I suspect if we looked, and this is pure suspicion, and then I'll let Ryan go on with his question. But I suspect if we looked, this happened before and during his impeachment for the Ukraine activities. And they were conducting a defense. And he was saying this was a perfect phone call when there probably was information that it was not, that, that he was acting essentially in conjunction or parallel to the Russian government. Anyway. I think that's, no, that's true. And that's the pattern of his behavior. I mean, he, he's done that. He did that in the lead up to 16. I mean, think about what Russia or what, what the Mueller report said. And I think Director Mueller at some point said that, you know, he, he knew they were trying to help and he welcomed that assistance. And if nothing else, the, the Mueller investigation established that. Well, it's the same thing going on, you know, into 2020. And, and people, I'm certain, were to the extent he wouldn't throw a temper tantrum if the, the R word were mentioned and throw you out of the room to the extent people tried to warn him. And there was reporting that Bill Barr tried to warn him off of Rudy Giuliani. I don't think he particularly cared. I think he saw it as assistance. I don't think his, there is no sort of you know, old civics class that he took in, you know, junior, senior year of high school or early in college where he, you know, had inculcated in him some sort of sense of what was right and wrong in terms of, you know, what political assistance should or shouldn't be. And he simply saw it as something that would help him and on a strictly utilitarian basis made the decision to take it because he saw it helping him. And there was not a moment's hesitation to do it. Sorry, Ryan. So I had a similar thought in a way as what David just asked. And I agree with everything that you had said as well, Pete, about the what crime, what law has been broken, and then maybe there's something there with Giuliani and um, potentially with uh, him being an unregistered foreign agent with his relationship to the Ukrainian officials, which has been reported, and then that's a very big decision for the Justice Department to maybe have to make. But there might be other forms of accountability. I thought the one part of the intelligence assessment, unclassified summary that we received is how close they come to identifying members of Congress as having been at most charitably passive recipients of this intelligence operation on the part of the Russians, if not complicit. And then as David mentioned, there's been reporting in the times that the FBI gave defensive briefings to members of Congress, including warning Senator Johnson specifically about the individual that he had met with, um, uh, Mr. Andrei Teloshenko. And yet the report doesn't really tell us that. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, it took, I, you know, you detected it, I detected it with respect to its references to the information that was then fed to uh, Johnson by this cabal of Ukrainians that are mentioned in the report, but they, so in terms of accountability, I suppose they must have made a decision as to how explicit they were going to be. But they kind of, in a certain sense of wherever you strike that balance, that's a difficult, sensitive policy discrimination. But they pulled back pretty significantly. They could have told the American people, they're not just like senior officials or government officials, just many Americans think executive branch, but in Congress or even name names. I mean, they have that information. And it's just remarkable to me that today we have um, the House Minority Leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, trying to introduce a resolution <laughs> against 
Eric Swalwell, yeah. Oh, yeah. where the FBI yeah. said, you know, and this, I, I don't even want to go into it because I don't want to like repeat the disinformation that's coming out of the uh, minority leader McCarthy's bogus allegations because the FBI said that uh, Swalwell was um, quote unquote, completely cooperative <laughs> with the FBI and they found no wrongdoing on his part. And Kevin McCarthy is doing this in 2021 where he's able to do it because the DNI, the intelligence assessment report didn't mention the person that Kevin McCarthy has put on as the ranking, uh, minor, the ranking uh, Republican member of the intelligence committee, Devin Nunes. And just to take a quote, because we were mentioning what Trump knew during the impeachment proceedings, here's a quote from CNBC. Quote, at no point did Nunes ever mention that he or his staffers met with the three Ukrainian officials, some of whom were mentioned by name during testimony, end quote. So they're not getting away with murder, but they're getting away with complicity in a Russian intelligence operation and the American public isn't being told that. So- yeah, And I would, I would just yeah. add to that. He was a member of the Gang of Eight. Mm -hmm. So he was getting whatever intelligence was going in. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, and he, he played games. And I mean, he, he he allegedly recused himself after he made his little midnight Uber ride to the to the White House to mm -hmm. spill the beans. And he was supposed to be recused from Russia matters. And then when when Rod Rosenstein and Andy McCabe went up to brief on opening the case on Trump and the appointment of Mueller, he showed up anyway. So, yeah, he he look, I think, Ryan, to your point about. I was actually surprised a little bit on the other side that they gave as much information that they did that kind of observers who had been following the matter could sit there and say, oh, I bet that's Senator so-and-so and, you know, maybe OAN working with Rudy on this thing and, you know, and when Caputo and, and, you know, whether or not that's true, there are enough breadcrumbs to draw it out. I think we need to be careful. Yes, it would be satisfying to see it, but at the same time, I don't know that we want our intelligence community even though the FBI is a member of that, I don't think we want our intelligence community publishing reports where they're talking about the activities of the domestic actors, because I think that starts to cross a line where a lot of Americans actually would kind of pull back a little bit and say, I don't, you know what, even if it's wrong, I don't want, you know, this kind of goes in line with sort of the juridical idea out of DOJ that if you're not going to charge somebody, you don't comment on the case, right? You let, you let the indictment speak for what you found and the charges. And if you don't find the charges, then you don't speak about it because you don't for any number of reasons. But it's the same. It's even broader than that with the intelligence community that we don't, A, their charter is to look abroad. They're not to collect domestic intelligence. So, yeah, of course, they're going to incidentally collect information that you know, uh, Durkacz was passing information to name person one and two and three and four. But we don't want to, I think for good reason, want to get into a position where an intelligence community assessment is talking about the activity of domestic actors. Yeah, the FBI is part of that. And I'm sure that, you know, the FBI, if they didn't have the pen for writing those portions of it, certainly played the kind of controlling yes or in conjunction with DOJ, the yes or no about what level of information uh, was included in that. So I don't, I would love more. I, I would I would like to yes naming people would serve a greater sort of d not only deterrent but also have a potential direct sort of sanctioning effect on it but I don't think it's appropriate for the IC to do it kind of a side note and I, I don't want to drag us down a rabbit hole but that's really I, I'm really interested because the Biden administration gave uh, DNI Haynes the mission in large measure to look at domestic terrorism and that's a really interesting I don't know how mm. they're going to do that because the IC has strong barriers in place to prevent, to kind of wall off any sort of domestic activity collection. And, you know, overseeing, yes, they oversee the FBI's contribution to the US intelligence community, but that's a very interesting, um, I'm curious to see how that plays out in practice. Um, but you know, setting that aside, I hear you and yes, more specificity would have had a greater sanction, but I don't know that it's, 
something that I think would have been appropriate for the IC to do. I would add there's an additional corollary conundrum, which is what do you do when your counterintelligence investigation, whether it's domestic or foreign intelligence, implicates, as in this case, the leadership of an entire political party? It's, it's not just domestic, but it's people who are in privileged and in some cases allegedly protected positions, as you've just said, who are and who are taking advantage of the fact that they're open to abuse this. Kavita. <laughs> I, I can't help but think that, um, I don't know, David, as we were talking, honestly, and, and Peter's so correct, you can't, it's very hard to sue members of Congress. It's actually very hard to hold like between ODNI, um, you know, any any of these kind of government positions, albeit agencies or individuals, it's actually very hard to hold people responsible. And it just makes, and it frustrates me. I I don't know why, when you were talking, what I can't, who was it? Was it, um, remember when Biden said Putin was a killer and um, and, uh, uh, who was it in response? Do Do you mean like yesterday? Yesterday, yes, yeah, but I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I was, I'm sorry, my brain, I'm having, <laughs> I have, um, I have, I, I, I will confess that I have like a transference of COVID fog brain because I'm seeing this, but, but I can't help but think like, that's how the world's, and I'm not agreeing with some of these statements, but it takes a killer to know a killer, right? That's kind of how the world sees us. And if we are having these domestic quibbles about, well, we can't hold Ron Johnson accountable today, Rand Paul, did a bunch of crazy, you know, kind of questions for Fauci, which I found amusing. But if you step back and look at it, it does feel like our democracy at times is just kind of broken. And and I can't help but think that we're looking to the law, we're looking, Peter, to like kind of like justice and like fair-mindedness. But I'll say Democrats and Republicans alike, I mean, we seem to have failed people, like I mean, decades of failing people. And so I'm looking to the three of you to kind of help me figure out, you know, what do you do? Take the ODNI report, take all the reports we've gotten. What what are the what are the building blocks? Is it what I mean, Ryan's written about this. Is it we just need to get more like voices around, you know, more judges, people getting people into some of these decision making kind of bully pulpits. Elections, Peter, to your point. But we don't even have fair elections. Like, I, like yeah, I, when you were saying it, that, I'm sitting make it here worse, thinking, right? Based like, on all we're the, making it right, worse. The, so how yeah. do you, how do you, what do I say to like our my kids? Like, what do I say? Like, fine, democracy doesn't work a lot of the time, and <laughs> our job is to try to fix it. I don't know. Democrats need to. I, I, this is where David it comes back. We're having that talk about the filibuster again, right? We need to get a spine and we need to like get over it and we need to do something. And I, I maybe that's where we start. Tell, you know, tell McConnell to suck it. We're going to do it. We'll get rid of it. Maybe that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm a hopeful because you got to be hopeful, right? Well, you do. I normally, I, I, think, I tried, I, think... I try to be some days on COVID. Yeah. I'm, I'm COVID. I'm actually hopeful today, which is unusual. You can ask. Even with the rain outside, right? <laughs> it, yeah. it is, but I mean, yes. I, 
we we the u.s went through such a period of remarkable prosperity from probably you know starting in the late 40s 50s all the way up through Mm -hmm. today that i think this sense of you know it goes to again that loss of the idea of patriotism Mm -hmm. there's nobody who or who had parents or family who went through the first world war or the second world war kind of these real existential threat and fights that didn't have impressed upon them an extraordinary obligation to the notion of our democracy, that it is a participatory process. And I think we throughout, you know, starting in the, you know, after the Vietnam War, yes, there were, you know, there were wars that we lost a tragic number of people, but we didn't face that same sort of threat. And I think a lot of Americans tended to start taking our obligations to the notion of what American participatory participatory democracy is for granted that it's a birthright that it's just going to come that i don't need to do anything that i'm going to get all these things without needing to you know be anything other than a spoiled child and if anything what i'm hoping the last administration did is highlight to a lot of folks maybe not on the right or the far right but hopefully on the center right and for sure on the left this democracy is a lot more fragile than we think it is. Mm -hmm. This isn't a God-given right. Mm -hmm. If we don't affirmatively go out and work towards those ideals, which hopefully we all should be holding in common, and we don't, obviously, but if we're not actively working towards it, we're going to lose it. And so I'm hoping and, you know, I'm heartened by the, you know, the the turnout, last presidential election and 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 the congressional elections. I mean, unprecedented level. Yes, it's being, you know, any number of governors are trying to roll that back and make it much harder to vote because they see the writing on the wall and it's transparent the reasons why they're doing it. But but if anything, you know, what I'm trying to latch on to is to keep that spirit of how bad it was and how bad it could have become That's true. Yeah. to continue to drive that change. And, you know, but Americans stink at attention span wise, right? I mean, it'll go back to normal and, you know, most of the networks aren't even carrying the Daily White House press briefing anymore because it's It's boring because it's working like it should be working. So who cares? Let's find some outrage somewhere else. And no, look, you know, Trump posted some weird statement that looks like a tweet. And let's talk about that. So anyway, I don't I don't know what you all think, how we do that. Brian, I'm always optimistic. I mean, just to add to it, so I also think that like the Black Lives Movement protests, which were transracial and generational and and the like, shows civic mindedness in a powerful way. Also, just a recent piece is the COVID relief bill passes with over 70% of Americans supporting Mm -hmm. the same piece of legislation, even though one of the two parties didn't support it. That to me is also optimistic in terms of the American people not being swayed by disinformation, but seeing the value in policy that will benefit them higher than 70%. I just think that that's optimistic for the future in a certain sense. And the other one is somewhat similar to what Peter was saying. I think some of the problems have just been with us, like mm-hmm. white supremacist, domestic extremists and domestic violence extremists that's been with us. And now in some ways, a benefit of the January 6th attack to a certain degree is where the heightened awareness and the institutional commitment that will be behind it in terms of what Attorney General Garland can do and and Christopher Wray and others. So I have optimism in in that respect. Yeah, if if the Republican Party were not blocking the woman who was supposed to head the civil rights division at the Department of Justice because, you know, she's a strong woman of color, just like other people that they have blocked. But, you know, when I listen to this, I'm, you know, Kavita, you're optimistic and Ryan is optimistic and um, and uh, 
you know, Pete, you've been judicious about your response. I have to say, I'm a little pessimistic mm-hmm. um, uh, because I, what we're talking about here, when I think about it, when I think about 2016 and the Mueller report and 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 the two impeachments and the information here, um, I think of the impunity of those who got away with it. And then when I think about some of the abuses that have gone on in different um, uh, government corners of the government and other things, I think of impunity uh, of you know Wall Street and 2007 and 2008, essentially bankrupting the economy uh, and and millions of people and getting away with it. I, you know, I would argue that there's an impunity crisis in the United States, and the impunity crisis is linked directly to growing inequality over the course of the past 40 years. And the result of all of this is unfortunately, uh, and I'm not saying it's irreversible, but unfortunately the notion that is inscribed in the pediment of the Supreme Court of the United States, which is equal justice under law, isn't true. It's not true if the president has immunity. That's that's been not true for a long time. No, well, I understand. No, no, I understand that. I'm just saying it's and you know it's it's less true. And let's look. I mean, yesterday we had the outrageous and kind of not kind of the outrageous and nauseating spectacle of um, a a sheriff in Georgia saying that somebody who murdered eight people was having a bad day because he was a 21 year old white guy with a gun who was killing people of color so this impunity is not just about economics it's about race um and it continues to be and that you know it's just i mean can it can it change does joe biden want to change it does merrick garland want to change it do those people who voted that you referred to want to yeah i think they can change it but right now the system is broken and we, you know, the question is whether we acknowledge that or, you know, I mean, if, if, you know, if, if, if Kavita doesn't get to be Senate majority leader and stand up to Mitch McConnell and we don't, in, you know, vote through HR1 or the mm-hmm. John right. Lewis Voting Rights Act or something, they're going to change the law. And it's specifically with the purpose of making it harder for people of color to vote and easier for white people to have more influence. And it's going to get worse. So that's that's why I'm a little dark on this today, although I don't know. I and leave. just to be clear, Democrats play just in case people think all we do is seem agreeable. Um, I, I'm, I mean, you know, as much as I like to say everything Biden's been doing so far has been right I I still think I think Peter, you're right. Like not asking um, director. I mean, they need to answer some of these tough questions. And it's not fair that we're asking. You know, you'll hear this outcry of like you can't put expectations on this president that nobody even bothered to put. I think it's a false narrative to kind of compare how this treated Trump and how this treated. But we are where we are, and I don't care. Kind of, <laughs> I don't care how you know FDR himself handled it at some level. This is kind of the world we have. And I would love to see, you know, instead of selling, I know why they're selling the Recovery Act because they're waiting to do the infrastructure package. I would be incredibly saddened if that infrastructure package, even though they're talking about doing it by filibuster, doesn't have some really aggressive things in my space, healthcare, that type of thing. And it'll be interesting. This will be his test, but 
we often fail these tests as Democrats. Yeah, I, I have a big question in my mind about how, if momentum is maintained and what that looks like, um, particularly, you know, there was so much, I think, a lot of people, you know, certainly on the on the Republican side as well, didn't understand just how much was in the, you know, the, the COVID relief bill that was mm-hmm. passed. And I think mm-hmm. that as we go on, there'll be much more kind of the firming up of the opposition in a way that's going to make it much harder to go forward. And so you just across the board to maintain the momentum in legislation and, you know, getting judicial nominations made and confirmed and just across the board, you know, creating new regulation, let alone anything external to the U.S., you know, new renewing treaties or relationships or, you know, regulation regimes of environmental consequence. All of those start getting hard. And if it's much easier to, and, you know, you know this from being on the, the Hill way back when, it's much easier to slow something down than it is to it is. be pushing it through. And so, you know, if you want to resist and push and slow, that's far, far easier to do on many fronts than it is to push one thing through, let alone a bunch. So I'm curious to see how it plays out. I mean, this is, you know, for sure where 2022 is what a, or, you know, the midterm elections are not far away at all. Um, so, you know, this kind of both houses of Congress and the administration of the same party is, you know, the clock's ticking. So I'm curious mm-hmm. to see what happens going forward. Want a last word here, Ryan? I guess I'll tie something together. I, I, I do think that in an, an opportunity to criticize in some sense, part of the democratic leadership, I do think that there's a failure to come to terms with the events of January 6th and what it means about the state of our country. And something that we were saying earlier, I, I am just still um, completely shocked by how much Christopher Wraith went before his committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and got asked no tough questions about what could be described as a catastrophic failure on the part of the FBI. And he, uh, if anything, they um, treated him as a kind of a a reigning king. And, um, you know, Andrew Weissman was very critical about Christopher Wraith. I guess just in the last bit, is, I've just been sitting here thinking about it the whole time since you had first spoken about it up here. Do you think that it was, because you mentioned that the FBI didn't know. I think the FBI knew. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, everybody knew. Who, who couldn't tell? I don't, I, if if they knew, of, how could they, if they, if they, so look, if they knew, how could they have not said something? And that's why I just don't, I, I can't wrap yeah. my head around this apparent surprise of, well, you know, we and this easy excuse of, well, we can't look at online because that's all First Amendment protected activity. It's like, well, you can, there are plenty of things you could have looked at that pass the threshold of what you're legally allowed to look at. So mm-hmm. just to stop, you know, but nobody pushed back on that answer. Yeah. There are, you know, and, and again, to, to Kavita's earlier point, I am convinced, you know, and, and sharing the blame on Congress here, not just Director Ray, had those members on 1-6 all have had skin of a non-white color the hostility of questioning towards Director Ray would have been markedly different. Yeah. The both the, the questioning and the answers, I, you cannot separate from the real question, how much of that entire interaction was driven based on the fact that these were white conservative men, almost exclusively engaging in this activity. Um, and it, it's discouraging. Um, and I think, you know, I share, I'm hopeful, I, I can't explain why for something this big, and it is, in my mind, uh, a catastrophic event. You know, Dave Chappelle 
just had this cutting humor about, you know, the Civil War, we didn't even have the Confederate flag being, you know, he, he used much more direct language and, and, and a funnier cutting way. But, you know, we, we had people walking around the halls of Congress with Confederate flags and, you know, Camp Auschwitz sweatshirts and all kinds of just hateful, horrible stuff. And for the FBI and for the U.S. government to not have some better preparation and understanding that that was coming. And, you know, let's not take away to the point of what the Democrats are doing. They were egged on by the president of the United States. They were incited by the president of the United States who whipped them into a, you know, a fervor through a speech hours before coming on the heels of speeches the night before that were given by Mike Flynn and others, getting this crowd riled up and ready to do it. So look, you, you, there's, there's so much there that shouldn't be objectionable to anybody of any political stripe that I don't understand why we're not talking and thinking about it that way more. Totally, totally agree. And I think, you know, follow, you know, following on Ryan's point about um, Director Ray, you know, there also were not questions about what, what did the White House say? Yeah. To, you know, what did the White House say to the Department of Defense? What did the White House say to the other branches of the U.S. government? How, how, what was the, how was the message of standing down or treating this dealt with? How was the message about getting permits and other kinds of things dealt with? In the case of Russia 2016, in the case of um, dealing with covering up and, and in, in the era of the Mueller report, in the case of Ukraine, in the case of this, United States government at the top was helping to orchestrate what was going on. And there is no mechanism in the United States to deal with that. Um, so in any event, much more to talk about here. We're very fortunate uh, that you could join us today, Pete. We're grateful. I'm always grateful to be joined by Ryan and by Kavita. Um, and by everybody who is out there listening, uh, these are these are big issues, and and hopefully, as Pete indicates, there will be developments over the course of the year ahead. Perhaps there will be some degree of accountability at some point for all of this, uh, if not from the mechanisms of justice uh, in our government, then then from journalists and others who shed light on it. We shall see. Um, uh, we hope you will all be back to to join in these discussions again in the future. In the meantime, if you want to know what else we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you want to support what we're doing, go to click on membership and support what we're doing. Um, and uh, in, uh, also uh, make sure you take good care of yourselves out there, everybody. And we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.